Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A warm welcome to First Move. I am St. Asher in for Julia Chatley. So good to have you with us. Just ahead on today's show, Terra in Pakistan, more than 30 people are dead and scores injured after a suspected suicide bomb attack uh, in a mosque, the blast occurring in northwest Pakistan. We are live uh, there with the very latest. Plus, calls for calm. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken arrives in Tel Aviv for high-level talks amid escalating violence uh, in the region. And Adani's anger, Asia's richest man, fights back against fraud allegations in a 400-page rebuttal calling charges against his empire an attack against India. Shares of Adani-controlled companies are falling for a third straight session. All that and so much more here on First Move. But first, let's give you, as usual, a quick check of uh, the global markets. U.S. futures pointing to early session losses. Europe, mostly lower too, but gains in China as markets there reopen after the Lunar New Year break. Wall Street coming off a winning week with the Nasdaq rising more than 40%, 4%, excuse me, not 40%, 4%. But hefty challenges await investors in the days ahead, including an interest rate decision from the Federal Reserve, the Bank of England and the ECB. All of that happening this week. Closely watched earnings from Apple, Meta, Alphabet and Amazon as well. Plus, a big U.S. Gosh, it is a busy week this week. A big U.S. jobs report on Friday as well. A closer look at the markets later this hour with Brian Levitt of Invesco. But first, let's go straight to Pakistan. That is our top story. A massive explosion uh, inside a mosque, killing at least 34 people and injuring more than 120 others. This happening in northwestern Pakistan. The Pakistani Taliban has claimed responsibility for the attack. Sophia Safi joins us with the very latest. Sophia, this is just awful. Right now, the death toll stands at 34. Of course, that number could rise. Just just walk us through what happened here. Uh, Zen, this happened during afternoon prayers in the Police Alliance Mosque, which is in the heavily secured police compound of Peshawar City. Uh, and there was a blast. Uh, the police are saying that it's probably a suicide attack. The Prime Minister has also called it a suicide attack when he was condemning it. Uh, we know that the ceiling itself fell in and that people were trapped in the, under the rubble. And then they, some people continue to be trapped uh, under that rubble. And this is a city, Peshawar, which has seen many such attacks in the past and now that we're getting this claim of responsibility from the Pakistani Taliban which has been known for many many heinous attacks uh, in the city of Peshawar specifically and of course across Pakistan uh, there has been an increase in militant attacks especially from by the TTP uh, since the end of November last year uh, when a ceasefire between the Pakistani government and the Pakistani Taliban fell apart the Pakistani government has often blamed 
blamed its neighbor Afghanistan for harboring uh, the Pakistani Taliban. And just last month uh, in December, there was an attempted suicide uh, attack in the capital city of Islamabad. So over the past couple of weeks, just in Islamabad, where I'm standing right now, there's been a heightened sense of security. There have been checkposts. There have been paramilitary troops wandering around in the capital. And it has been a similar situation uh, in the city of Peshawar. Uh, we do know that that death toll could rise and it's just a very horrible, horrific sense of deja vu for the people of Peshawar who have seen many similar attacks happen uh, over the past couple of years, over the past decades and they had decreased. But ever since the fall of Kabul uh, in the summer of 2021, uh, the Pakistani Taliban have regrouped and have started a further series of attacks, especially in the north of Pakistan. So there had been smaller uh, attacks on checkposts, on military outposts, etc., in the north of Pakistan. But this is a big attack that has taken place here uh, in Pakistan and in Peshawar. Sen? Yeah, our thoughts obviously with the relatives of the victims. God knows what they're going through right now. Sophia, safety life was there. Thank you so much. All right, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is set to meet Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu after multiple deadly incidents in the region. A, pa a Palestinian gunman killed seven people outside a synagogue in East Jerusalem on Friday, a day after an Israeli military raid killed nine Palestinians in the West Bank. Uh, shortly after landing in Israel, Blinken condemned the violence and he also called for calm as well. It's the responsibility of everyone to take steps to calm tensions rather than inflame them, to work toward a day when people no longer feel afraid in their communities, in their homes, in their places of worship. That is the only way to halt the rising tide of violence that has taken too many lives, too many Israelis, too many Palestinians. Hadass Gold is live for us uh, in Jerusalem. So obviously, Anthony Blinken is going to be spending time with Netanyahu and Abbas. What does he need to say? What does he really need to say here, Hadass, to contribute to the resumption of dialogue between both sides? Yeah, Zane, when Anthony Blinken landed just in the last hour or so, he mentioned that this was really a pivotal moment. But really, it's, it's more than pivotal. It's a high-stakes crisis moment right now. And the sense of urgency over Secretary of State Blinken's visit couldn't be higher right now. There's a lot of hope that what he can do will help calm things down. But I have to say, based off of the multiple people, officials, former officials I've been speaking to, experts, there is not a lot of optimism that what he can do can really and truly halt this cycle of violence. They think it might be able to really maybe lower the temperature just a little bit, but not completely halt it. Now, his first visit, as we speak right now, actually, he's with Benjamin Netanyahu, and we, will, we do expect to hear from both of them uh, in some press statements within the next hour or so. And likely he will be telling Benjamin Netanyahu that he will support Israel's right to fight terrorism and he supports Israel's right to do that. But he will likely want Netanyahu to moderate some of the list of actions that the prime minister announced that Israel will be taking in the wake of those attacks, things that are seen as collective punishment, for example, uh, demolishing attackers' families' homes. There are threats also to revoke the Israeli residency and identity cards of families of attackers. And he will also be calling on Netanyahu to rein in the settlements. There have been several uh, reports of violent attacks by Israeli settlers in the occupied West Bank, mainly things like burning cars and damaging homes. Uh, but 
If you consider also what Netanyahu is facing in domestic politics, you know, he, ha he is now leading what's largely considered the most far-right religious government in Israeli history. And some of his ministers, who are more on the extremist edge, are even pushing for more. So Netanyahu is going to essentially have to balance the American pressure to moderate himself. And then on the other side, his own domestic coalition partners that really, without them, he does not have power. He is not prime minister. Then tomorrow, Blinken will head to Ramallah. He will meet with the Palestinian leadership. And there we expect him to put pressure on the Palestinians to resume that security coordination that the Palestinians severed on Thursday after that Israeli military raid in Janine. This security coordination is seen by many as really vital to help some sense of calm. There's a lot of fear of what will happen if that security coordination does not exist. I spoke to one uh, retired colonel. He worries about the vacuum that that could leave for militant groups to take over. But the Palestinian leadership themselves face their own domestic pressure. To, to sever that coordination because for many Palestinians, they see it as just doing Israel's bidding in the Palestinian territories. And throughout all of this, we will likely hear from Antony Blinken that the Americans still support the two-state solution. They see it as the only way forward. But the way it feels right now is those just seem to be words on paper and no closer to reality. Zane. Yeah, and, and as you point out, it's very difficult balancing act for Netanyahu, where he has to sort of appear to appease the U.S., while at the same time also appeasing his far-right coalition partners as well. Hadass Gold, life for us there. Thank you uh, so much. Right, I want to turn now to the savage and deadly police beating of Tyree Nichols uh, in the United States. The Memphis, Tennessee Police Department is permanently closing down. They're permanently shutting down their so-called Scorpion Street Crime Unit. The five police officers charged with murdering Tyree were members of that unit. A warning that Sarah Seidner's piece, this piece that we're about to show you, her story here, contains graphic images of uh, police brutality. Police body camera and surveillance video are bringing into question the initial statement made by the Memphis Police Department regarding the brutal arrest and death of Tyree Nichols. The initial statement writes that officers attempted to make a traffic stop for reckless driving. Further writing, as officers approached the driver of the vehicle, a confrontation occurred. As seen in the police body camera video, Nichols was actually pulled out of the car and thrown to the ground, tased and beaten. The Memphis Police Department statement said that Nichols fled the scene on foot and officers pursued the suspect and again attempted to take the suspect into custody while attempting to take the suspect into custody, another confrontation occurred. That second confrontation includes officers spraying him with pepper spray and punching and kicking him repeatedly. I have more and more doubts that there was any issue of reckless driving whatsoever. I think it was a narrative. I think it was a justification for the stop, just as they pleaded on some of the video that you saw in the second encounter that they were, they were saying, did you see him reach for my gun? That never happened. Those are all excuses. Those are all lame defenses and, and just a, a reason for what they did, which is now we know has no basis at all. According to the Memphis police, the suspect complained of having shortness of breath, at which time an ambulance was called. Sit up, man. The video shows Nichols propped up against a police car, clearly in distress, while the officers stand around chatting with each other. Medics arrive, but it is not until 25 minutes after Nichols is subdued 
that an ambulance arrives on the scene. This is certainly not the first time that videos and evidence contradict initial police accounts that favor the officers involved. In the case of George Floyd, the Minneapolis police said Floyd appeared to be suffering medical distress, when in reality, video evidence showed Officer Derek Chauvin kneeling on Floyd's neck. In the case of Breonna Taylor, the initial statement from Louisville police said she had no injuries, even though six shots struck her when police entered her home using a battering ram to execute a search warrant. The report also says there was no forced entry. That was our Sarah Seidner reporting there. All right, turning to a 400-page rebuttal. The Adani Group, responding to fraud allegations, a report released last week accused the business empire of brazen stock manipulation and an accounting fraud scheme over the course of decades, knocking nearly $70 billion of Adani's market cap. To unpack the very detailed response, 400-page response, actually, let's bring in CNN's Anna Stewart. So just walk us through the latest in terms of, A, the accusations and, of course, the rebuttal here. It was quite extraordinary how the financial fallout has just continued through the weekend. And you mentioned how much money's been wiped off some of the stock. Uh, Gautam Atani, who is the richest man in Asia, is not as rich. <laughs> he's, still, he's lost some $30 billion, according to the Bloomberg billion, Billionaires Index, uh, on the back of this fallout. Now, over the weekend, we had this big rebuttal from the Adani group. Now, they'd already said that the allegations were baseless. They'd said that they were malicious. But yesterday, they published this 400-plus page report. I haven't made it quite the whole way through, but I can give you some highlights. It caused the attack by Hindenburg Research as rife with conflict of interest uh, and designed for Hindenburg's financial gain. And it also said this, we'll bring up a quote from you. It says, it wasn't just an unwarranted attack on any specific company, but a calculated attack on India, the independence, integrity and quality of Indian institutions and the growth story and ambition of India. To which, to that, we had Hindenburg responding on Twitter saying fraud cannot be obfuscated by nationalism. Uh, they also said that the Adani report, this big rebuttal, actually ignored, they say, every key allegation they had. So this spat that started last Wednesday has only intensified. And at this stage, saying it's very unclear who is going to have the last word at this stage. Right. So what, what is next uh, for, for Adani? I mean, it's clear that the group is not going to be able to raise the kind of money they want to going forward. Mm. Well, that's just it. So they're trying to raise two and a half billion dollars by issuing new shares. And that's in Adani Enterprises right now. Although there was a slight pop on the shares this morning over the last few days, the losses are so great that currently the share price is underneath the bottom range for that share issue. So really unclear what's going to happen. It's meant to close tomorrow. That's something we're going to have to watch. The investor appetite doesn't appear to be there at all. Not only that, but if we just go back to last Wednesday before the sort of spat really intensified, at the heart of this, there are some very serious allegations made against the Adani group in terms of fraud. And so I think another part of the story to watch out for is whether any financial regulator gets involved and an official investigation is launched. I think investors are probably waiting to see what happens next as well. Zane? All right. Anna Stewart, live for us there. Thank you so much. All right. The CEO of TikTok is going to be appearing before Congress in March as American lawmakers look to scrutinize the Chinese owned video sharing app. Shouzi Chu is expected to testify on the company's privacy and data security practices and its relationship with the Chinese Communist Party. Joining me live now is CNN's Paul LaMonica. I mean, Paul, there has been so much talk of a possible, possible tick 
TikTok ban uh, in the U.S., which sort of seems in a way unthinkable. But just explain to us how realistic that possibility really is at this point. Yeah, I don't think we can rule out, uh, Zane, at this point, the possibility that TikTok could be banned in the United States. It's already being shunned by many people in government agencies. There are national security concerns because, as you point out, the parent company ByteDance does have, you know, is a Chinese uh, you know, company. So there are worries about ties to the Chinese Communist Party. And that is why there already had been this agreement to have TikTok in the U.S. hosted on Oracle platforms instead of ByteDance's, um, you know, that's one way that TikTok was able to avoid an outright ban through an agreement, you know, a, a little while ago. I think what remains to be seen, Zane, is what will this mean for ByteDance potentially ever going public, be it in an international market like Hong Kong or Shanghai or even the United States. This is, at last check, the world's most valuable startup valued at more than $140 billion. I'm also curious, I mean, if there, if there were to be a ban on TikTok in the U.S., I mean, obviously it's very hypothetical um, at this point in time, but if there were to be a ban, just how would that really change the social media landscape here in the U.S., do you think? It would be uh, drastic if you had all of a sudden uh, young people and influencers not being able to use TikTok. It has obviously become a very important tool for people to tell their stories. And I think that is something that, you know, potentially could benefit companies like Alphabet, which has YouTube shorts. It could benefit Snapchat, which has been struggling lately. And then obviously there is Meta, the Facebook owner that also owns Instagram and Reels. So there are alternatives, of course, to TikTok, Zane. But TikTok clearly has just galvanized, I think, uh, you know, many uh, people in the influencer community to use this platform. I think it would be a very unpopular decision for yes. these people if you they were told that, that they can you know i you know what i must be the last person standing because i've i've just not gotten into tiktok at all i don't have a tiktok account do you by the way i do not and strangely okay. enough my kids wind up watching it on youtube their their exposure from tiktok is watching so they're not, people they're not, your kids are not on tiktok on youtube shorts that is a real miracle. If your kids are not on TikTok, I don't even know how, how old they are, but they're not on TikTok. That's some, that's unheard of, assuming that they are teenagers. But they're on Snapchat, okay. so they're getting their phone somewhere, yeah. Uh, Paul and Monica, for us there. Thank you so much. All right, still to come here on First Move, Powell, profits and payrolls. A busy week ahead on Wall Street after a strong start to the new year. Can the bulls keep the rally going? We'll discuss with Brian Levitt of Invesco. Plus... From a positive market disposition to a NASA moonshot mission, who will the U.S. pick to land on the moon for the first time in decades? We'll explain coming up. All right, welcome back to First Move. U.S. Spot stocks remain on track for a lower open as investors gear up for an extremely uh, challenging week. Cautious sentiment today, but tech stocks are coming off a fourth straight week of gains. The Nasdaq, in fact, up 11% so far this year. Stocks 
Getting a boost last week from encouraging inflation data, the Fed's preferred measure of inflation easing to 15-month lows. So that's certainly good news there. Uh, slowing inflation gives the U.S. Central Bank room to lighten up on rate hikes. A less aggressive quarter-point rate hike increase uh, is widely expected from Powell and company this week. Earnings, however, remain a concern uh, in the U.S. Profits set to post their first year-over-year quarterly decline since 2020. Weaker profits will surely lead to increased slow growth fears. Early forecasts from the Atlanta Fed show this economy growing at less than 1% annual rate this quarter. New data showing Germany's economy contracting in the fourth quarter as well. Let's bring in Brian Levitt, the perfect person to talk to about all of this, global market strategist at Invesco, who joins us live now. So, um, Brian, gosh, there's so much to talk about in terms of what's going on. This I don't even know where to begin, really. But let's start with what we expect on Wednesday uh, from the Fed. What sort of a rate hike are you anticipating this time? Are the days of the 75 sort of basis point increases, are those days gone? Are those days behind us now? Yeah, those days are behind us. So the market is expecting 25 basis points. I see very little reason why the Fed would surprise the market. As you mentioned, inflation is coming down rapidly. And I'm not even sure investors realize how rapidly it's coming down. Yes, the 12-month percent change in the consumer price index is 6.5%. But if you look at the six-month percent change, it's zero. If you look at the bond market's expectations of inflation within the tips market, it's somewhere between 2 and 2.5% two and over the next 10 years. So inflation is, is becoming passe, and the Fed is getting closer to the end of the tightening cycle. Okay, so does that mean that uh, Jerome Powell is getting the soft landing that he's been dreaming of uh, over the past year? We still don't know. Right now, the market is very enthusiastic about the prospects of a soft landing. I mean, interest rates have gone up uh, what, after this week, 475 basis points in nine, 10 months. That's a lot. And yet the unemployment rate remains low. Consumer spending is hanging in there. I think it's a little bit too optimistic to think that the economy can go through all of this tightening with not without having some incidents. So the economy is to slow. That's what the Fed wants. Uh, will we have a recession? There's a reasonable probability of it. But what I think matters more for investors is that the market is largely priced it in. The, the S&P 500 fell peak to trough from January 3rd to October 16th of last year, 25.4%. That's very much in line with how markets decline uh, around or associated with relatively mild recessions. So if you're Jerome Powell, what do you need to see um, before sort of pausing rate hikes entirely? What would you need to see? I've already seen it. So oh. what, I, what I would have needed to see was long-term inflation expectations get back into the twos. That has absolutely happened. I would need to see directionally uh, the, the consumer price index roll over, which it has. You've never seen in U.S. history where inflation went up rapidly, that it didn't come down just as rapidly. If I was Jerome Powell now, I would be concerned about over tightening the same way in 2021 they were too easy. I would be concerned now about over tightening. All the telltale signs of a decline in inflation are there. OK, so jobs report day Friday. What are you expecting? 
this this economy continues to hang in there. So I, I, I wouldn't expect anything robust that is particularly disconcerting for the Fed. I, I would expect uh, around average, fairly modest job growth, which is which is fine. Clearly, the bigger issue is going to be what's happening with wages. You are seeing some signs of wages slowing, which is important. Now, some would say, how could that be? If you talk to a restaurant owner, a ho- you know, somebody that works at a hotel or somebody that works for an airline, it's hard to get workers. That's absolutely true. But the tech sector starting to shed some shed, shed easy for me to say shed some jobs. <laughs> the financial sector twister. you're seeing wages come down from from the prior year. So that's all pointing towards a moderation, which is what we hope to see in the data, which will give the Federal Reserve even more comfort to be done with their tightening stance, perhaps by February or March of this year. And you know, Brian. Um, you know, I'm glad you brought up the tech sector, because when you think about the interest rate hikes we've seen over the past year, what sort of impact, just pulling back slightly, what sort of impact um, has all of that had on, on tech stocks? Yeah, I mean, think about it this way. When, when tech stocks were roaring, and, and, and I'm not talking about the bellwethers, I'm talking even the speculative technology companies, interest rates were zero. And so in a zero rate world, investors are willing to speculate on on a lot of things, whether that's tech stocks, crypto, NFTs, anything else. In a 4% interest rate world, that's a big difference because now I have an alternative, right? I have a bird in the hand type of investing. and, And as a result, valuations on those types of things come down. If you look at the tech sector, valuations have come down a lot. In fact, the earnings yield on a growth index, the Russell 1000 growth, is about in line with the 10-year Treasury, which suggests valuations are now once again reasonable relative to bonds. As rates come down, now they're not going to come down rapidly, but over time as rates come down, that starts to become more supportive of the, uh, of the growth part of the market and technology stocks, because as rates come down, it's pointing to a... Uh, you know, ultimately a more modest long-term growth environment. All right. Brian Levitt, so good to see you. Thank you so much for being with us early Thank in the you. morning. We appreciate it. All right. Still to come here on First Move, I speak with the CEO of Ukraine's third largest mobile network provider, working to keep the country connected despite war and an ongoing energy supply crisis. Incredible. That story next. All right. Former British Prime Minister Boris Johnson says that Russian President Vladimir Putin once threatened him with a missile strike. Johnson said it happened during a phone call before Russia's invasion of Ukraine last year. A short clip was released as a preview to the BBC documentary Putin versus the West. You know, he, he sort of he threatened me at one point and said, you know, uh, Boris, I don't want to hurt you, but uh, with a missile, it would only take a minute or something like that, you know. Uh, yeah, jolly. Uh, but I think from the the very relaxed tone that he was taking, uh, the sort of air of detachment that he seemed to have, he was just playing along uh, with my attempts to get him to negotiate. All right, the Kremlin coming out and saying that Johnson's claim, you just heard there in the part of that documentary there, they're calling it a lie. Uh, Meantime, in Ukraine, President Vladimir Zelensky met with the Danish prime minister in southern Ukraine Monday. The two visited wounded Ukrainian soldiers in a local hospital. Mr Zelensky says that Russia hopes to drag out the war to exhaust 
Ukrainian forces and has renewed his pleas for more firepower as his country braces for another Russian offensive. Russia hopes to drag out the war and exhaust our forces. So we have to make time our weapon. We have to accelerate developments. We have to speed up the supply and launch of new necessary military options for Ukraine. Mr. Zelensky noted that the situation is very tough, especially on the eastern front lines of the Donetsk region, which has been under constant attack uh, in recent days. Let's talk to our Sam Kiley joining us live now from Kyiv. So as Ukrainians, as the Ukrainians continue to sort of hold the line in, in Bakhmut, just explain to us, Sam, what sort of weaponry are they relying on here as they await for the Leopard 2 tanks to arrive? Well, it's all, it is. Uh, I mean, the, in the view of uh, many international analysts, military experts, of course, uh, President Zelensky's statement that the Russians are playing for a longer game than the Ukrainians could potentially sustain is almost a statement of the obvious. The Russians have the advantage, Zane, in terms of personnel and in terms of uh, weapons, in terms of the uh, quantity rather than the quality. And this is the key issue. The Leopard tanks or Challenger tanks from the United Kingdom, uh, the Leopards, of course, a German-made tank, uh, could be uh, very, very useful indeed for the Ukrainian effort, but they really need the ability to defend their skies against the cruise missile attacks in particular that are coming so regularly from Russia. They have also been talking from day one of this war, demanding, actually, uh, to have the right to be given... Uh, aircraft, because of course the control of, over the skies is still not totally dominated at all by Russia. There is a Ukrainian air force; it is uh, still conducting operations. But if they had more modern NATO-type weapons, there's a lot of talk about F-16s. That could be make a strategic difference. And there is a slowing, slowly growing understanding within NATO that the Russians, by playing the long game or freezing the front lines uh, roughly where they might be now, that would effectively turn out to be a victory for Russia, that the only future for Ukraine is to completely uh, destroy the Russian army here and drive the Russians out of the country entirely. That's not yet a full consensus in terms of what NATO leaders privately think, because they're very worried about uh, the use of the nuclear option by Russia if uh, Putin's forces were absolutely backed into that position. Now, there is, though, a growing consensus that the Ukrainians do need much more modern weapons. Now, recently, uh, Chancellor Scholz of Germany said that Germany would not be supplying aircraft, but that doesn't mean that other countries will not. The issue for the Ukrainian perspective is that they need it now. They need it very, very urgently because, there's, as, as President Zelensky said, the Russians could outlast them. Zane? All right, Sam Kaidi, live for us there. Thank you so much. <clears throat> The deficit in Ukraine's power systems uh, remains significant, according to the country's national energy company, Ukrainago. Uh, it says the power grid is still recovering from damage caused by Russian missile attacks and that all the regions will be subject to power outages as demand continues to outstrip production. Attacks on the electrical grid are also putting major strain on the country's communication network. And that is where my next guest comes in. LifeCell is Ukraine's third largest mobile telephone network operator, and it has been on the front lines keeping customers connected. The company initiated the launch of a national roaming system in Ukraine 
allowing users to switch networks if theirs is temporarily unavailable. And it's also helping to restore communication in liberated territories as well. Joining me live now is Ismet Yassizi. He's the CEO of LifeCell. Ismet, thank you so much uh, for being with us. I mean, the work you're doing in your country is hugely vital. I mean, it's so vital for Ukrainians to be able to communicate with each other, especially from different parts of the country during this time of immense crisis. Just explain to us what sort of impact Russia's relentless ongoing bombardment of the power grid, the energy infrastructure has really had on on the services you're trying to provide. Uh, first of all, thank you for having me. You know, we f finished 11 months in this uh, war and all these inhuman attacks. And each and every day, war is being escalated to newer phases. And uh, as the escalation is going on, people are being impacted as well uh, for their daily lives. And being the mobile operators, uh, you know, I'm sure you know the motto, leave no man behind. Our biggest motto is leave no woman and man behind unconnected. This is what we have been trying to do, not only us, together with uh, other two major uh, mobile operators. This has been our uh, biggest uh, efforts from the beginning of the war. But the power cuts are really impacting us very badly. And this war also showed us that after uh, finding shelter and food and water supply, the next most important need is communication. People need to be in contact with their loved ones, families or soldiers in the army from their families. So that's why it is very, very vital to keep the communication networks up and running. But unfortunately, this uh, power grid attacks are putting our networks uh, out of order. Uh, this uh, number may go up to 50% of total networks are not working time to time. We have been trying to uh, fix them, of course. There is a tremendous effort going on uh, by our field uh, forces, I mean our employees and subcontractors. And also we have been trying to buy uh, diesel generators and uh, Leon batteries, lithium batteries. Unfortunately, there is a big shortage on both uh, diesel generators and lithium batteries. I have been making you know, uh, big announcements on the social media to everybody, to all the mobile operators uh, in the globe. Uh, we are asking them to send us diesel generators and Leon batteries. That being said, we are not looking for donations. If we can find some diesel generators and batteries, we are ready and happy to buy them. Uh, as I said, uh, our biggest, biggest aim is to keep all Ukrainians connected while there is, uh, while they are uh, resisting and they are, have been putting an epic war uh, in front of the world. That's incredible. You, you know, you talk about this idea of not needing donations, that you're more than happy to buy the generators and buy the batteries that you need. I mean, I'm sure that there obviously will be, and I'm sure has been an outpouring of, of support uh, for your country, especially because as you point out, I mean, Communication is vital, not just in terms of obviously having family members communicate with each other and having soldiers at times be able to communicate with their loved ones. That is crucial. But I think what is equally yeah. as important is that communication in any sort of in any country where there's war, communication is vital for morale. I mean, President Zelensky needs to get his message across, needs to be able, needs to ensure that people um members of his country, obviously, can, can listen to his speeches. And that is pr crucial for maintaining the popular support of this war, right? 
Yes, uh, definitely. And I have to admit that Mr. Zelensky has been following up with all these communication-related issues around the clock. Believe me, I'm not exaggerating. And uh, we are getting guidance uh, firstly from Mr. President and uh, with all the institutions of the country, our regulatory bodies. So uh, we have been working in a great uh, cooperation. And so far, uh, we are also resisting. We are also holding the line. We never left Ukrainians without any communication, by all means. So how frequently are repairs actually needed on the ground? I imagine it must be pretty much every day. Yeah, unfortunately, that's the case. But of course, uh, there is a correlation between these missile attacks or drone attacks and our network status. Uh, for the last uh, almost two months, all the power systems, power grids have been under attack. And uh, whenever the, there is a hit, thanks God, Ukrainian air defense systems have been very, very successful. But at the end of the day, uh, some of the uh, power grid elements are being uh, hit. And after that, as soon as the uh, air raid sirens uh, uh, became silent, our uh, field teams are going to the field to start uh, making the connections or hundreds of our employees, also the other uh, mobile operators employees, have been running around the sites with the mobile diesel generators as well. I mean, it is really tremendous effort. It is uh, easy to say, but uh, I have been also personally taking part just to support my guys in the field. It is really a very, very task job, especially when you consider the weather conditions minus wait, 10, 15 Wait, so isn't, it, so isn't it you yourself as CEO, you've been going out into the field and helping your teams uh, make the necessary repairs? Of course, what I have done is not comparable what the great things my teams have been doing. My point was uh, to feel uh, their difficulties in the field and also to show them uh, my support. And I realized that people are really getting motivated. At least they know that all their great efforts are being recognized and also known by heart. So that was my point. Of course, uh, being one person, my contribution is going to be so limited. But at least I was proud to be in the field together with my team. Yeah, incredible solidarity there, uh, standing shoulder to shoulder to you know, with all those people who work for you. But uh, Ismet, thank you so much for being with us. We wish you all the best. Appreciate it. Thank you again for having me. And let me finish with saying Slava Ukraine. So glory to Ukraine. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you so much, Ismet. We appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Still ahead, struggling to keep the lights on. South Africa's energy crisis deepens. We find out how people are coping. Next. All right, welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running this Monday. We've got, uh, let's see here, a little bit of a, I guess, mostly lower open across the board here. D NASDAQ currently down uh, just under 1% there. Bulls taking a bit of a breather, clearly, ahead of key earnings and economic data later on this week. That said, it has been a strong January so far. Many of last year's stock laggards uh, uh, joining in the fun, certainly. Tesla, which fell more than 60% uh, last year, is up more than 40% year to date. Disney and Netflix shares, which also fell significantly last year, up more than 20%. And it's not just U.S. shares that are rallying. 
major European stock markets are in the plus column this year as well. Meantime, uh, let's see, in Asia, Chinese stocks are up some 50% in the past three months as the country drops zero COVID regulations. All right, South Africans have endured power cuts for years, but 2022 was the worst on record. More than 200 days of rolling blackouts. The government is struggling to keep the lights on. I mean, look, look at this. I mean, this is literally, I believe, Johannesburg, completely in the dark. The energy crisis is crippling major cities there and also businesses as well. CNN's David McKenzie reports here. But we want to warn you that some viewers may find some of the images we're about to show you rather disturbing. Tens of thousands of dead birds suffocated when the power failed and surges blew the backup systems. It's the awful impact of a country in crisis. So when you saw thousands of chickens die like this, what was it like for you? Glass of cold water in your face. It was so, so bad. It, I never thought it would happen to me. Herman Dupree has struggled for months with up to 10 hours of rolling blackouts a day. He can't hide his anger at the government. I'm not asking them to do me a favour. Really, I don't. I will keep, do my job. I will produce food. I'll wake up early, work on Sundays to produce food for South Africa. I like what I'm doing. Just do your job. Um, you, have, you have one thing to do. Just do it. Just give us power, please. But power is in short supply. The farm that Dupria and his father built from scratch now runs at a loss during the worst blackouts. He says diesel costs could sink them. The president himself has admitted that corruption, sabotage, a lack of skills has caused this issue. Why should this government then be trusted to fix it? Well, David, as you know, uh, this problem predates President Ramaphosa's time in government. Even the president now acknowledges that decades of mismanagement and breathtaking corruption crippled state-owned power utility ESCOM. A lack of maintenance, a deep skills deficit, and regulatory red tape have all helped cause this crisis. I'm going to repeat the same question, which is why should South Africans trust a government that caused this problem to fix this problem? We accept those, uh, those, th th those mistakes. I've said it, and the president has said it numerous times, that there were massive, regrettable policy missteps that led us to where we are now. However, now we're focusing on the solution and the opportunities that are being presented by this crisis. To energy security forward. forward. Not everyone is buying it. The official opposition is calling for mass action. You can sense the growing frustration in South Africa already. This crisis isn't just inconvenient for people, it can kill the dreams of a better future. A better future is what Tando Makubu and his family strive for. Are you proud of your son? Yes, I am. <laughs> but we used to fight a lot. Okay, that's Caramel Canyon. Tando turned a small government COVID grant into the Soweto Creamery. Yes! <laughs> it's a huge hit here, thanks to the whole Makubu family. But when the power goes out, their profits evaporate. So now, about to turn on the generator. Their plans to expand put on hold. What do you want the government to do? Uh, I want the government to be brutally honest with us. If they are able to fix it, please fix it. If they, they can't, they must let us know. And it makes us feel that we are not really in a 
democracy because it's meant to, to, to be for the people, by the people, but it seems as if for them, by them, you know. At the very least, Tando and all South Africans just desperately want the lights to be turned back on. David McKenzie, CNN, Soweto, South Africa. All right, still to come here on First Move, it has been more than 50 years since NASA sent astronauts to the moon. We'll take a look at who could be going next. That's after the break. Fly me to the moon. I was almost about to sing that, but I thought I'd spare you instead. As NASA gears up to announce its first crew to blast off to the moon in five decades, CNN has actually gained an exclusive inside look at the secret selection process, as well as a list of possible candidates. Kristen Fisher joins us live now. So, Kristen, it looks like this process is actually such a secret. I mean, it's such a secret uh, in terms of figuring out who might be getting sent to the moon. But just explain to us who are the possible candidates uh, on the list. Sure. Well, Zane, it's such a secret because it's it's kind of been this way at NASA since the very beginning, since those first uh, Mercury astronaut flight assignments were done in the late 1950s and early 1960s. Over the years, it's gone through periods of being uh, more transparent and less transparent. And the reason that there is so much secrecy around this crew selection processing is because, uh, one, it's very complicated. There's a lot of very small factors that go into it. But the real reason is that, you know, there is just such a high talent pool here. I mean, Zane, these astronauts, there are 41 active astronauts at NASA right now currently in the running for this Artemis II crew. They're already the best of the best. They've already uh, gone through the astronaut selection process, beaten out thousands of candidates for these 41 slots. Most of them have already flown in space. And so it's just very toughy when, tough when you're dealing with this high quality of candidates to whittle it down. And so some of the deciding factors that CNN has uncovered after interviews with uh, about a dozen current and former NASA officials and astronauts is that it really comes down to a combination of technical expertise. Are you a team player? But they also really want diversity. And Zane, I'm not just talking about racial and gender diversity, though that is very important too, but also professional diversity. They want a really solid mix of test pilots and citizen astronauts. So based on that list, uh, based on those conversations with those dozens or so officials, uh, I was able to figure out who are some of the top contenders that are receiving the most buzz inside NASA. And I want to pop them up on our screen if we've got them. It's a, it's a wide mix of people. You have everybody from Randy Bresnick to Victor Glover, Jeremy Hansen, Christina Koch, Anne McLean, Jessica Meir, Stephanie Wilson, and Reed Weissman. All of them except one uh, have flown on space flights before. And, you know, the big question, Zane, is, you know, will Washington's leadership, will the uh, NASA administrator have a say in this process? And what we have learned is that he told CNN that no, he will not. He is going to leave this decision for this very critical crew assignment with the folks at Mm -hmm. the Johnson Space Center in Houston, Mm -hmm. Texas, saying. My gosh, I can't imagine what it would be like getting that phone call saying that you are actually going to the moon. Incredible. All right, Kristen Fisher, live for us there. Thank you so much. And that is it for the show. I'm Zane Asher. Connect the World is up next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. 
And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.